0: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.
1: Good evening, listeners, and salut Babette. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Tonight I want to take you with me to a magnificent town called Gloucester in New South Wales. We went north on the train from Sydney through coal country and tranquil farming areas on a line that goes up to New England. We've done several shows on this including the first time when I arrived in Gloucester late at night for a campaign and I slept in a tent and when I unzipped the tent in the morning I thought I'd awoken in Switzerland with the craggy bucket mountains all around and black and white cows staring at me. That time AGL was testing for gas in the valley and people had gathered to protest. After gloucester fought off agl a few years or a couple of years later we did a show called the town that said no to agl which is the name of a book and i have admired the courage and community spirit of these people ever since this show is about a weekend held at gloucester high school to look at the sustainable futures they can collectively imagine how to diversify their economy without the gas and coal jobs that are still held up as a salvation for many regions. So this is really a, a program about a town that wants to transition. We were greeted by the Wang Jari dancers. <laughs> ritter spoke to us at the conference he's the ceo of greenpeace and he spoke warmly to the local people some of whom were very shy on stage they said i'm so nervous i can't hardly speak he said don't you ever be nervous again in public we need to hear your voice it is so much more refreshing anyway and much more real than what our politicians say to us every night on tv He was delighted by all the different people there and uh, you could see building this community takes all sorts. I interviewed David uh, about the second major victory for Gloucester. After AGL they had to take on a coal mine and the Rocky Hill coal mine decision where the judge in the Land Environment Court, Justice Preston, he said this is the wrong time in history for a new coal mine the wrong time and the wrong place. And today, just today, that precedent is set because there will be no more appeals. We have um, David Ritter here at Gloucester. He's a CEO of Greenpeace, as listeners will remember. But I really want to start on a very high note because at Gloucester, this town has had two huge battles and they've sort of won them. David, can you just tell us why Gloucester is now a town that would be a hero internationally in the effort to slow down climate change?
2: Well, uh, yes, Vivian, it would be a great uh, privilege and an honour to to describe this incredible success by this just amazing, amazing community out at Gloucester. So the plan was to construct the Rocky Hill coal mine and the community out at Gloucester, the, the Gloucester groundswell, have fought them off and they've... They fought off the miners, um, running an argument in the Land and Environment Court that, that, as I understand it, but but we should have full disclosure to your business <laughs> here. I'm a recovering lawyer; I haven't practised for more than ten years, and I had nothing to do with this case. The, the basis of the of the challenge was really that, uh, first of all, that the mine wasn't appropriate in a place where it would have such damage on the local environment, local amenity, and secondly, that because of the urgent need to cut emissions, it just wasn't appropriate to build a new coal mine. The challenge was successful huge credit to the amazing community here but also to their absolutely top notch uh, legal advice through the New South Wales Environmental Defenders Office who by all accounts did a magnificent job.
1: Yes, well they had also the Aboriginal perspective put in, uh, Rocky Hill being a place of great importance to them and this has created an international precedent and I get sick of reading editorials where they say Australia's emissions look what are they in the great scheme of things they're only about 1% of world emissions blah 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 and never count our exported emissions in all that coal that goes through where we are here gloucester listeners there are trains running past every few minutes full of coal and we also export gas so can you you've written a book about this recently so can you tell us a bit more about how this precedent legal precedent in such a small little place as gloucester and a smaller country like australia is significant
2: Well, you know, there's a a funny thing that goes on with Australia, isn't there, that uh, if it comes to sport we just simply expect to be among the best in the world and we should have that kind of expectation when it comes to doing the right thing by the planet and the right thing in the context of building a a juster world. We can absolutely lead on these things. We are a wealthy, talented country full of extraordinary people. So this, this problem that is built into the global system to try and reduce emissions, which is that you count emissions where they're, where they're made, but f- not from where they're exported. So we count, the, we count what we burn in Australia in fossil fuel, but as you say, not what we export. This problem uh, needs to be countered by taking on the producers of fossil fuels as well. The, the law is not right for this yet anywhere in the world. So whenever we see a legal precedent where a court has taken a position either under statute or under the common law that the simple digging up or drilling of coal, oil or gas is not allowed for, for whatever the particular legal uh, doctrine in play might be, every single one of these precedents is of enormous value because the, the law, law, law revolves for the most part slowly but the law, the legal system, is under pressure to really speed up in its response to this planetary crisis. So, so we're looking all across the world. People are looking at the precedents that are changing things for the better, and there is no doubt that Rocky Hill is one of those.
1: Okay. Well, look. At all the rallies I go to, the recent student one was very huge in Sydney, we talk about system change. A lot of the placards say system change, not climate change. Naomi Klein said, this changes everything, this big battle we now have to do to save the climate from tipping tipping up to much higher heating points. What part of the legal system would you like to see change?
2: I think there are ways in which we could change the legal system which don't simply give us a better chance of staying under 1.5 degrees but are also just good in and of themselves. And I think when when Naomi Klein, for example, writes about this kind of thing, she's looking at things that don't simply make make the world uh, safer in climate terms but also just make it a better world in other ways. So, for example, were we to change the DNA of corporations so that they owed fiduciary obligations that went beyond the obligations to their shareholders that also included obligations, for example, to local communities or to nature or to to their employees, then we would simply change the economic system for the better in a multitude of ways as well as uh, almost immediately making significant strides in relation to uh, global warming. Similarly, any of the laws that we might introduce... To uh, get the money out of politics, which, which no, no one thinks is a good thing, you, you cannot. There is no one. If you stop someone on the street and say, "Do you think it is a good thing that uh, the availability of lobbying money influences what Parliament does?", there there is no Australian citizen, regardless of their of their beliefs, so if they stop for a moment, would would you know think it's a good thing that that happens. So there are these kinds of things that we we can do um, that would make. Um, Big differences to, the, to uh, climate change, but would just make a big difference to improve the system at large. And I think, particularly in the context of the common law. So, common law is judge made law, and probably judges are in a situation where they, I think, will, there, there may be an emerging judicial curiosity in what the duties are in judicial decision making the influences in judicial decision making that arise in a context where we have less than a dozen years to make unprecedented changes in our society to ward off global catastrophe. It seems to me that is an a, 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 is increasingly going to be a question that occupies those uh, impressive judicial minds.
3: The mesmerising colours of the girl, or the of Uluru has power and it's raining
1: People say here these are disruptive times and fossil fuels to me have disrupted our climate but it seems to me fossil fuels have also disrupted and like the forestry lobby, they've also disrupted our democracy. It's been distorted and you said to this audience here this is an example of a very rigorous and strong community who have learned how to fight and have now won. A lot of communities fight and don't win but what power do you see in local communities like Gloucester to reverse this thing that has been so distorted? I mean, we vote one government in, and we'll vote another government, people hang out for the next election, but it seems it doesn't change anything. So go back to the local level. What power do you see here?
2: Well, I suppose we should also have just a quick note of caution that they haven't finally won. The coal company no, could, no. Uh, uh, could still appeal, and I, and I understand may be appealing, so we, we should note that. But we have an increasing... Uh, number of live current examples of communities that are organising to take control of their own destiny using all of the tools at their disposal. And each time, whether, whether it's the Margaret River community fighting off a coal mining company, whether it's the Gloucester community fighting off a coal mining company, whether it's residents in uh, Western Sydney uh demanding community-owned power, numerous other examples from around Australia, community in Apollo Bay in Victoria organising to uh, join the, the fight to keep the great Australian bike free of oil drilling. Every every one of these uh, makes it, in a sense, easier for others because we see the, the power of organised communities. But I also wouldn't be Uh, I wouldn't want us to write off the importance of elections. Elections do still matter. We are often faced with a situation where one party... Uh, does have a substantially better climate policy than the other. And I think the job for, for all of us who are that way inclined is to also get involved in the political process. You know, if you, if you, you fancy yourself as a, as a pro-climate candidate, then have a go. And look, we've just heard this fantastic uh, climate leaders campaign that's been launched by some of the leading lights in the school climate strikers. But equally, if you, if you strongly identify with one of the political parties, get involved because there's nothing in the ideology underpinning the Liberal Party or the National Party uh, that makes them climate blockers. Absolutely not. And there's certainly nothing in the ideology of the Labor Party that means they cannot be more ambitious. If, if you feel that way inclined, join a party, get involved and organise around making the country a better place in accordance with your values. So,
1: okay, I'd like to finish now on the visionary side and I think this, when you speak to people you do inspire that. You asked people here to imagine what a sustainable future would look like with this huge threat of climate change over our shoulder. Could you talk to our listeners about that? Just tell them what your vision of it, of it is. Do you feel like that?
2: Sure. I, I don't work for Greenpeace because I fear climate change. Uh, I work for Greenpeace because I experience love. And that is a love of the people whom I care about and the places, the institutions, the traditions that nurtured them and a love of nature. That, that in my life is the smell of the mud <laughs> in the creek where I grew up. It's the taste of Jonathan apples, <laughs> uh, which were the tart apples that grew on the tree outside my bedroom. It's the sight of the flight of the grasshoppers that lived in the paddock that was nearby. In the, the inner city place where we live in Sydney now, it's the empty brown carapaces of the cicadas that have gone off to go and do their cicada things once they've, once they've climbed up the walls. It's a love of compassion and creativity that human beings are capable of and that compassion and creativity can be expressed in terms of all of that work that is done, nurturing each other, uh, nurturing things that we care about, buildings... Learning, learning how to do things, learning skills, inventing things, problem solving, creating, creating bridges, creating mm. art, creating... Mm. It is all, all of these things that we are responsible for and I think, I think I'm not particularly special in this regard because I think these are the motivations that are intrinsic to people and that when we ease back into our chairs at night... The things that, that, that really preoccupy us are the hope that is around that deep set of love, that deep love that we have. And the clouds that form over us are fears and anxieties about that love not capable of being realised. But the extraordinary position that we are in is we have the technical solutions we need to actually build a world in which human compassion and creativity is allowed to flourish, as is nature, So tomorrow when we get out of our beds in the morning, let's just get on with building it.
1: Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to say that I haven't asked you the right question, but just something you've got a big audience listening to in Melbourne and they're all thinking about beyond zero emissions, drawing down carbon, living better, living in more communities? Is there something you'd just like to say to them?
2: Well, I want to encourage them to continue to listen to your show, (laughs) Vivian. No, look. I, I just want to say thank you for for all of your all of your work, all, all of you who, all, all of those who are listening. Thank you, thank you for all of your work. The the, the there is so much to feel joyful around, and one of the things to feel uh, joyful about is that that sense of. of Comradeship, of friendship, of, 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 of solidarity, of love, of, of neighbourliness, of common care, of common purpose, that just comes out of knowing that you are not alone, that we are in this together, and that in Australia and across the world there are tens and thousands and millions of us who are marching, writing, striving, uh, decision making, um, climbing things, uh, interviewing people, uh, getting in front of bulldozers, uh, any number of other noble and necessary activities because we're in this together. So
3: thank you is the
2: thing I want to say.
1: Thank you David Ritter
3: On March 16 the Sintani region of Jaipura in West Papua was hit by massive flooding and landslides, killing at least 89 people with more than 6,000 people evacuated from their home 74 people are missing and 159 have been injured. This disaster is the result of torrential rain coupled with the water of the mountains. Also, poor waste management, polluting and clogging waterways, leading to flash flooding and mudslides. At this time, West Papuan people need your help more than ever. Help us reach our goal to raise $10,000 to provide emergency supplies, food, first aid, nappies, baby food, and milk formula. All money raised will go directly to Yayasan Abdi Budaya Nusantara, a foundation facilitating the evacuation camp in Sentani, West Papua. Donate online at https slash project flood relief really for West Papua. West Papuan people need you It's time to help and don't make them feel alone.
1: David Morris works with the EDO, that's the Environment Defender's Office in New South Wales, and he represented Groundswell Gloucester in court. And here's how he explained the Rocky Hill decision. Bear with it, listeners. It's quite a detailed talk, but... Really, it's fascinating and I'd love to actually read that decision because it was groundbreaking. It really set a precedent for the law in the future.
4: We we said that we think you should try and be involved in this court case and we think that there are more issues that should be in question in determining whether this mine should go ahead and they include social impacts broadly and also the sort of novel ground of of climate change. I, I guess if you divide it up into this concept of place... And, and impacts on place, and that encompasses everything from Aboriginal cultural heritage through to uh, just people's feeling of cohesion with the land and landscape in which they live. And then the second ground, which was the climate change ground, which we agonised over a little bit because I remember Elaine and I, quite late in the office one night, asking whether, debating whether we could run a climate change ground, but in a, in a coking coal context. So people probably know this mine was used for steel making or the coal. To Proposed to be mined, there is used for steel making. There is no commercially viable alternative to using coking coal to manufacture steel yet. And there are some there are some products which are being manufactured at the moment, which are in their sort of nascent stages, but aren't yet commercially viable. They may well be in a short period of time. But we did think, gee, it's going to be very hard in that frame to argue climate change. But then we thought about it and thought, well, the atmosphere doesn't really care. And we also wondered whether there's already enough coking coal permitted around the world that there actually isn't any supply need to, to meet that demand. And so we reached out to Tim Buckley, who was one of our experts, and he said, well, no, there's, there's actually plenty of supply to meet demand at the moment. And he also gave us examples of a number of projects around the world where people are looking at substitutes for coking coal to manufacture steel. So there's a plant in Sweden now which is, which is doing the manufacture of steel without any... Uh, and so it's a carbon neutral, neutral manufacture of steel. We went and uh, sought for Grounds for Gloucester to be gl- joined to the proceeding and the opposition's lawyers laughed at us and, and, and said that this was absurd and that we were trying to create a new glo- global geopolitical norm. Uh, of no new coal mines, it was absurd. the local con- local planning framework just can 't in any way justify this and in any way it 's a coal- it 's a coking coal mine. you guys are stupid was the uh, you, you know that was sort of the, the message that was coming um, but fortunately and, and their, their submission to the court was that having a climate change ground would be both a sideshow and a distraction from the real issues. Um, the court disagreed and, and allowed Groundswell to be involved in the case and that then allowed us to engage Will Steffen as an expert. Um, he's an earth atmospheric <laughs> systems scientist. Um, I said climatologist and someone said, no, no, no. He's an, earth systems, uh, he's an earth systems specialist. Anyway, he's one of the people in Australia who understands climate change better than anyone else tellingly that neither the mine nor the government decided to oppose Will's evidence with a scientist. They decided instead to get an economist to uh, oppose Will's evidence. And so we've got this great uh, two-and-a-half-week hearing. Will gave evidence and was extensively cross-examined. And the, the core argument was that you've got this concept of the carbon budget, and I'll just... Uh, Essentially, the carbon budget is conceptually simple. Uh, It it says that if we're to stay within 2 degrees global mean temperature rise or, better, 1.5, and necessarily for some places in the Pacific, then it's a scientific question of how you then stay within that carbon budget. And he went through the analysis of how much is currently permitted around the world, how much has already been burnt, so how much of the budget have we already spent, and if, if you do that analysis, there's not very much more that can be burned. And so we we basically made the argument that it's difficult to see how this mine gets around the problem of the carbon budget. If you accept climate change is happening and there's nothing judge, for you to... Th- th- there's no contrary evidence of that. If, if Presumably, if there had been some wonderful scientist, they decided not to bring, say, Ian Plimer out, who's a... Uh, often brought out on Sky News, but but wasn't brought out in this court case to um, provide a contrary picture to Will and There's a finite amount that can be that can be put into the atmosphere, and we already have enough on the books to meet that budget. So approving another coal mine just sees us further exceed the carbon budget. And he said, Will, Will's evidence was once the carbon budget is spent, emissions have to be zero. CO two emissions have to be zero. Um,
5: did you have to use the Paris
4: Agreement? Yeah. yeah, yep. So the the Paris Agreement was where you get the uh, the target from. So th- they argued that it was an aspirational target, but but we argued, well, that that's not actually right. It's it's a binding target. The um, perhaps aspirational nature of it is thinking that you can achieve that goal through the currently nat- nationally determined contributions which, which see us hit something more along the lines of 3.6 degrees. Um, so I, I just want to stop briefly and talk about the other grounds, the, the non-climate change grounds because they are actually phenomenally important. Um, the judge went through, and I think it's the best exposition of, of judicial thinking in terms of impacts of these types of projects on communities that you'll find anywhere and it's really, really worth reading. I'm not going to go into it but he uses a, a cost benefit analysis he talks about the idea of intuitive synthesis as the role of the uh, of the decision maker in that case so you have to weigh up all of these different competing um, things and, and they include the, the economic benefits of a project but equally they must include the negatives of uh, what it does to communities, uh, what it does to Aboriginal cultural heritage. And there was a great article by an Oxford, um, uh, an Oxford scholar yesterday saying that this was one of the most uh, groundbreaking judgments in terms of looking at Indigenous rights and Indigenous environmental justice uh, anywhere in the world and that it will be used as a, as a really great tool to advance Indigenous justice as well. So um, I don't have time to sort of go into that, but it, it, but it is... We'll, we'll try and keep writing more about it. Uh, our, some of our staff in the office have been writing uh, articles about this judgment pretty much since it's been handed down. Uh, but there are lots of elements to unpack, and I suspect that we're just beginning to understand the utility of this judgment. Uh, I think the Chief Judge has used this case because it provided such a perfect example to advance many areas where environmental and climate justice are, are necessarily addressed. So he came up with this idea that there was this mine was both in the wrong place and at the wrong time. So I'll turn to the wrong time test now, which is he accepted the, the carbon budget and said, essentially, for a fossil fuel project now, this is the wrong time. So why should your project go ahead in the face of the point in in history that we currently are at. And really what we say it stands for is that you need to now have a net zero emissions mine or net zero emissions project. There are four things that the mine said about climate change. They said, firstly, the carbon budget wouldn't necessarily be exceeded because there's likely to be an increase in greenhouse gas uh, sinks, and there's likely to be other projects that will take carbon out of the atmosphere, so we'll probably be right.
2: Um,
4: and so they said that, that, would, that those sinks would net out the emissions of this project, and the Chief Judge uh, rejected that. He said a consent authority cannot rationally approve a development that is likely to have some identified environmental impact on the theoretical possibility that the environmental impact will be mitigated or offset by some unspecified and uncertain action at some unspecified and uncertain time <laughs> in the future.
5: <laughs>
4: uh, he, th- then the second argument was that this was not the least cost way of meeting the global abatement pro- problem, and that may well be right, but he said... He rejected that and said, if a consent authority determined that a development, development was unacceptable because of its climate impacts... Uh, it would not be rational to nevertheless approve the development because greater emissions reductions could be achieved from some other sources at lower cost by other persons or bodies. Um, this is probably the most, I think, most significant of the grounds, which is the drug dealer defence. Essentially, it's if we if we don't mine here in Gloucester, they'll probably mine somewhere in Indonesia. There will be lower regulatory um requirements it, it'll be a more damaging project, and the environment will be worse off for not having this mine here um, and that this mine uh, the, the, the coal required would be sourced elsewhere. Uh, he said, as to the market substitution, there was no certainty it would occur as countries were increasingly acting to combat climate change. Mm-hmm. There was no evidence about the existence or effect of market forces on substitutability. further, the argument was illogical the potential for a hypothetical but uncertain alternative development to cause the same unacceptable environmental impacts is not a reason to approve a definite development that will certainly cause unacceptable environmental impacts. As to carbon leakage, there was no no evidence it would occur and there was no evidence that other existing approved coal mines in Australia um, could not meet current and likely future demand. So he, he also talked about leadership and said... If, if there's no certainty that a mine will open up in Indonesia or India um, and that rather, couldn't it be just as likely? I mean, it's just as likely that if we stop opening up these mines, other countries around uh, the world might start uh, seeing our leadership and, and following in that example rather than just seeking to maximise economic benefits. So he, he basically said there's, there's, there was no evidence before him that could justify that. And that directly contradicts, I think, some of the accepted arguments before the land court in Queensland. And importantly, the land court in Queensland is not a superior court of record. It's, it's essentially a tribunal. It is a court of court, and it is a court, but it, it's not a, a court of the same standing as the land environment court. Um, and then the fourth yeah and then the fourth um, argument was that this was coking coal and that it was needed and he said well there's there 's no evidence before him that, <coughs> that likely current and future demands couldn 't be met by existing projects so that's that 's it I mean I guess the other the other points he said that scope three emissions were relevant to his decision, so that is emissions from burning the coal wherever that might occur <coughs> outside of Australia, which is controversial. Um, particularly, the mining industry, I think, is concerned about that because they mm. prefer to say, under the paris agreement uh, we 're only responsible for our own emissions that we burn here, mm. and so it 's a matter for Japan or India or Korea or wherever the coal we we mine is burned mm. it 's a matter mm. for them to deal with their own emissions he um, He said that Scope 3 emissions were relevant to his decision. And he also found, I think importantly, that there is a causal link between a local project and climate change. So um, that's really, really important because uh, it's been a stumbling block for a lot of negligence-type actions. Um, that inability to establish a causal link between a a project and the global issue of climate change.
1: I later caught up with Amanda Cahill. She is the CEO of an organisation called Next Economy. She talks about subsidising the future you want. There are jobs in it. And while 2% of our economy goes into defence, only 0.7% goes into overseas aid it's the lowest it's ever been and just when we urgently need to help climate-proof our neighbours, we are cutting back and cutting back again. She said we mustn't give up on government but we want government to hold the corporations to account. Her work has been building up local communities and as you will see, by diversifying and developing community trust like Gloucester, they can face the challenges of the future with courage. They're creating local economic benefits while lowering carbon emissions. Capitalism
0: operates a very particular logic. It's that wage labour, I sell my wage, done my labour to a business owner who has the means to have um, the capital and the means of production, um, and I can't afford that. So I have to like sell my labour to them. They make profits out of the value, excess value of my labour. So it's a very particular form of economic practice. But if you look at anyone's life, yours and mine and how we make a living. We don't all just rely on getting a wage and then buying everything with that. For example, in our every household there's usually a lot of unpaid labor that gets done. We access things through government services for example and welfare There's um, BZE is a not-for-profit that's run off volunteer labour. We grow our own vegetables. There's a whole lot of different things that we draw on, if you look at anyone's life, that are economic in practice. It's Mm. the way we produce things and get things done. But they don't fit a capitalist logic. So the work I'm doing with communities is actually helping make visible all of those practices so they can see that where they've got choice to do things differently.
1: I go to lots of climate related meetings and people say the problem is capitalism get rid of that first there was even at the student strike an adult who said that to the young students on the stage and they said but look no students can be from everywhere we can't have something that's get rid of one ideology or another of course we all have ideas about that but it's something bigger than that we want something that unifies people what do you think? I think
0: it's important to start with a diverse view of the economy because we do have capitalism and we do and in some ways, if you think about the classic model and the big corporations, actually they do some things well. They can produce things at a mass scale, they can work at a global level, they're very good at innovation and, and that kind of thing. But they do a lot of things really badly. And what's happened over the last 25 years is we've let them take over spaces that they really don't belong in because they're not good at providing things like good health and education and communication across like a country like Australia where there's lots of remote communities mm-hmm. because they're they're motivated by the bottom dollar and so they're not working from a rights or a justice framework whereas if you think about when government was much more in charge of those things and still is in some places, Um, they're motivated by different logic that's providing a public service and good. Mm. So they're going to subsidise and make sure that that happens because they have to, otherwise they get voted Mm. out. So it's thinking about what's the right vehicle for what needs to happen. Mm. Um, So I think it's not a this or that because it's a yes and. It's actually seeing that we have lots of different economic practices
1: and how do we look at that with a critical eye around What's the right model for what we need to do? Okay, well, look, climate change is the big thing now for our generation. How is it driving new ways of production that are more sustainable than the jobs and growth mantra that we've been sold the last, as you say, 25 years?
0: Yeah, the last five years I've been doing work Mm -hmm. in regional communities talking about what are the economic opportunities in Acting on climate change. So, across all sectors, so like BZE, you had your land use report, your buildings report, energy, um, there's also waste, manufacturing, and industrial processes. We need to reduce and absorb carbon emissions across the board. We need to change the way we produce things and move towards zero waste there's new job opportunities in that and there's actually investment ready to go. Mm -hmm. And I have discussions with people with lots of money who's like, but where are the projects? We actually Mm -hmm. want to invest. So Ah. if we just had better policy in place to enable that flow of investment, we can be building new industries and new jobs along with that, not just in renewable energy but asking the question, what does renewable energy enable if you've got cheap energy that's decentralised in regional areas? Mm.
1: Well, it's music to my ears because one of the Beyond Zero reports I liked very much was the high-speed rail, and they even had the timetable Melbourne to Sydney to Brisbane in about four hours. It was marvellous. I used to look at that time to just imagine myself on that train. But at the launches, we had many launches of that, and there were quite a lot of business people there who, again, said money's not the problem. Mm. You know, we'll invest in it, it'll make money, but it still hasn't happened. And although we are one of the richest countries, our politicians, and I think our journalists play a big part in crying poor all the time. Mm. You know, they say, oh, well, how can we afford high-speed rail? Why should we subsidise renewable energy? People say to me, but how can we pay for that? As if, well, of course they'd work it out if they really wanted it. What do you say to that?
0: Um, I think there's definitely lots of money around. It's what are we investing in versus not investing in. So if you look at, for example, the subsidies to the fossil fuel industry versus how much is invested in renewable energy. If you look at how much we spend on defence, like subsidising defence and investing in defence spending – is 2% of our GDP versus how much we invest in our aid budget that we can't actually seem to afford mm-hmm. to meet our international agreement of 0.7. So, you know, it's like those both investing in both those things will create jobs. What sort of jobs are they going to create? Um, and having that discussion because it's not about not having money, it's about going where is the money going and following that mm. and and seeing what sort of future is that leading to us because if we were actually... Working, for example, in the aid um, issue, by being able to support people in their own communities, be able to eat, um, and to that that creates peace and stability in those countries. Over time, we're not going to have to then subsidise defence and a migration program that's incredibly expensive by doing offshore detention, for example. Yeah. So it's what are we investing in for the future? Is the question, yeah. not whether there's enough money, because there's plenty of money.
1: Yeah. Well, the land sector. Is another area, it's, and people, we talked a lot about food this morning. The land sector is responsible, I think, for about thirty percent of our emissions in different countries. More carbon emissions. I, you, you, talked about a few things there, and I wonder a way to reduce that. Would that would um, <coughs> a guarantee of services, you know, basic services, water, electricity, and so on, or digital democracy help us get more people involved in making the decision? Where the money goes. Uh, in terms of
0: the food sector or yeah. more broadly?
1: Uh, the food sector first, but then more broadly.
0: Sorry, I'm not sure I got the question. No.
1: Can you say that again? Um, the land sector is one that we often leave out. We think of renewable energy, we're focused on stop a like stop exporting emissions, get renewable energy, but we can. Uh, reduce emissions on the land one way is planting trees uh, at a much greater scale but there's practices agricultural practices that would reduce carbon when you go around doing your motivation in communities and with your idea of the next economy what practices do you see that would be beneficial
0: yeah so you've got there's a whole lot of stuff around um Uh, land restoration so that's often people will think about tree planting but it's also protection of wetlands which are some of the biggest carbon sinks Mm. um but um, but in addition to that it's also how we're farming so um are we actually sequestering soil uh, carbon in the soil for example is it regenerative types of farming Mm. which is contentious but there are actually a lot of farming um that we know about that can actually start to draw carbon back into the soil if we change the way that we're doing things. Um, there's a whole lot of international investment funds around either protecting landscapes or helping farmers to change those practices Mm -hmm. it's really interesting in the top end of town and places like sydney there's all these investment people wanting to invest in that but when i'm going out into the regional areas they're like well we've heard about it but nobody's actually supporting us to do that so it's not that we don't have the ideas it's about how do we link up the people who are ready for the solutions with the money with the research that's actually going to enable
1: them to do that well how do we do that that's
0: a really good question. <laughs> For a start, I mean, it's like you could start at the top and say, well, why don't we have better federal policies in place that are just stable policies saying yeah. we need to act on climate change? And there's an economic opportunity in framing it that mm-hmm. way to actually get policies to enable the investment to flow, which has been an issue across any kind of climate action. Yeah we 've lost a lot of investment that was waiting to go that 's mm. gone overseas because with chopping and changing of policies mm. they 're just like it 's too risky to invest here mm. so that 's at the top level at the at the bottom le- at the sort of bottom level that sounds bad, but at a grassroots level in regional communities it 's things like making sure we 're protecting TAFE making sure that we 're protecting um, funding to universities mm. so that the, and DPI and CSIRO and all the, the the departments that are there to actually support do the farmer extension work. Yeah. Um, work with them to actually be funding this kind of research. Um, so it's kind of it's the infrastructure, the networks that need to be sorted out yeah. to enable things to flow. Because I, I really don't think that people are against this stuff. Like everywhere I go, people are like this is amazing. How do we get started? It's just the linkages to get the support that they need on the ground.
1: Yes, I get the impression that people are, are on board like that, and people say that now the population is ahead of the politicians. You know, we're coming yeah. up to a federal election. Everyone says, well, they should they should consult us. They should get they should be doing the it. state of knowledge that we're. We've got, and then they'd be doing it. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned digital democracy Mm. and more participatory ways of getting the people's views because it's becoming so urgent. We are degrading so much land. We are degrading now our climate. It is so urgent that we get more correct information through, and we've heard Mm. sessions about how even the journalists can't get the truth through because all these conspiracy ideas get through. It's a very bad information situation. What do you think about... digital democracy um
0: I think it's how it's used so um I don't think just having access gives you more access to the truth. I think it's how we use it to enable informed decision-making. So there's been some really interesting experiments around participatory budgeting, for example, which we talked about this morning at a local level, giving just a portion of the, the local budget from the local council and putting that out for a vote or you know, for the people to say what they want. And we're finding really good investments that are happening from that. I think we're at a point now where the issue isn't about technology like BZE and I, I work with BZE a lot to bring mm. them in on the technological thing and we still need to keep going with that, we need yep. to show yes this is possible, it's real, there are real results, yep. look at these case studies yep. unfortunately in this age of post-truth we need that voice to be clear and it needs to be evidence based and when it is people respect that, so we need to keep doing that but the real issue isn't a technical issue, it's a political issue and yep. that's going to involve remaking democracy from the ground up, so How do we actually engage people? How do we build their political capacity to work for what they've got, to build on their local communities the examples everywhere Mm -hmm. so we can actually put that pressure on politicians to follow? Mm -hmm. But I really loved what Mandrot was saying today about we also need different leaders. Mm -hmm. We actually need to change the leaders themselves. So getting people confident to engage in the system rather than giving up on it. So not giving up on government, saying, no, we want it to work. How do we hold them to account? How do we put pressure on them? How do we get candidates in that we can Mm -hmm. actually trust? I think that's actually the issue right now. We've got the money. We know what we need to do. We've just got to get the politics out of the way.
1: Thank you very much. Amanda has to rush to another meeting. But that was Dr. Amanda Cahill, uh, CEO of Next Economy. And you should look up her website, which is (laughs) nexteconomy.com.au. And last of all, we have one of the student strikers for climate, she uh, is a country girl from Maji. She's seventeen years old, and she was instrumental in getting the first uh, student strike for climate going. And she's part of the st- a student council group called Climate Leaders. They're trying to work um, during the uh, lead up to the election. They're trying to work on uh, promoting those candidates who are on the front foot with climate action. So that's called Climate Leaders, Manjot Kaur.
6: Mudgee is also a mining community, and that's something that has been a big part of my life growing up. That's been a big part of the culture of the community that I've grown up in, and for a long time I never questioned that. But I'm also of Indian background, and every year I would go back with my family to visit my parents' villages in northern India. Every year I would see that the local river had become incredibly polluted and toxic as a result of fossil fuel industries. Every year that I would see that extreme weather um, in the south was ravaging my places where my family was. Um, And for a long time I thought this was normal. In Australia we see this extreme weather every day as well, we see bushfires, we see droughts, we see heatwaves. And it wasn't until I started to learn and hear about climate change that I realized so much of what I'd been experiencing perhaps didn't have to be that extreme, perhaps didn't have to be that bad. And I started to realize that there was a way that that everything I So many things in life were actually tied back to to this one root cause. That climate change impacted so many different sectors of our life that we don't even think about. That it impacted health, that it impacted everyday lifestyles, and that especially it impacted people in developing nations. It impacted people that we couldn't see, and it had impacts that we weren't able to engage with. And because of that, I started to feel a deep responsibility to make a difference. I knew that I was privileged. I knew that I had a lot of leisure time and I knew that I had a responsibility to other people, to other young people, and especially to people in developing nations um, to stand up and fight climate change, not just for myself, not just for my future, but the future of so many, of the future of everyone on this planet. And then I started to question, why doesn't everyone else feel this responsibility? Why don't my political leaders feel this responsibility? I began to volunteer for the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. Um, I built my skills around campaigning. And from there, I went on to plan the Sydney school strike with some other students um, in November last year. And the school strike completely reshaped my understanding of what the environmental movement was. I started to realize that this was everybody's fight, and I started to realize that to make true change happen, we needed everybody to get on board. And that's what we saw in November, and that's what we saw again on March 15th. I saw ordinary people, I saw everyday working class, children, um, men, women, all coming together to unite under this one larger cause because ultimately it affects everything else. And that was one of the biggest shifts in thinking that I've seen, that realizing this wasn't just an environmental crisis, this was a humanitarian crisis and this was something that we could not avoid. The other students that I've met through the school strike um, have one key thing that differentiates them from most adult activists, that differentiates them from politicians who claim to care about our environment. And that is, young people see the world much more clearly. They see it perhaps much more basically, but they see it black and white, and that they see, at the end of the day, it's the people who matter. And they are able to see that it's not about the politics, it's not about the economics, at the end of the day, it's about the lives. And that's why the school strike has been so successful, because I think children have been able to say, What's actually important? They've been able to say, we need to care about our future. We need to care about the real human people who are, at the end of the day, going to be affected by that. And that's the way our politicians need to think about this issue as well. People who want to make a difference, but how do we translate that into the political system? We're often so disillusioned. It feels like politics is something that is out of our sphere. These leaders are people that we can't touch. They're people that we see on the TV screen, and at the end of the day, they don't they don't seem to be able to connect with us. And that's why after the school strike in November, I formed an organization called Climate Leaders with a few other school strikers um, to hold our politicians to account. Because if our leaders aren't listening, we need to change who our leaders are. And we need to rethink the way that we think about politics. It needs to be about public service. And that's what these politicians are because they are there to serve their communities and they are not there to serve themselves. I have a demand that climate change needs to be treated as a emergency, it needs to be treated as a crisis, like the world war, like the nuclear threat, like any other health crisis that we've seen. It needs to be the number one issue that everyone is thinking about, and the way that we need to make this happen is by reconnecting the way that we think and engage in politics.
1: Joanne McCarthy, an award-winning journalist with the Newcastle Herald. And I'm just giving a little bit of her thoughts on the media. She won the Graham Perkin Award as Australian Journalist of the Year in 2012, another award in 2013, Journalist of the Year, and the Gold Walkley Award in 2013 for reporting on institutional child sexual abuse. And that contributed to the establishment of the Royal Commission into Responses to child sexual abuse and so she talked a little bit how important the media is now how it's rapidly changing but it's very important that we don't um, just sideline journalists Uh, we need to value them
5: but the the role of journalism now in many respects and particularly right now is so important because for the last few decades, we've had, I suppose, neoliberalism, and we've had a certain view about the role of businesses in society, and that, and a lot of things fall, follow that. But what we've found, and you only have to look at, say, the banking royal commission two minutes, banking royal commission, that kind of thing. There's there there are real victims at the end of that line. There's been a failure of regulatory processes. That's where the media steps in, but. This digital media now, I've spent the last week, I wrote this really big piece, took bloody weeks of of reading stuff and reading huge reports and everything to boil down to one article and spent a lot of time and care. We have a a health system that's basically not fit for purpose. And I'm happy to say that at the end of five years of writing about pelvic mesh, there's so many elements that are just dreadful in terms of the, the patients at the end of the line. So I wrote this piece. There were a lot of ministers who had put questions to and they didn't want to respond. They wanted to gauge whether this article was going to go further. And it didn't because it was big and wordy. Then I wrote the next day, my boss asked me to ring Brian Burston just to get a quote from him or something. I wrote one story about Brian Burstyn seeking an ADO against James Ashby, you know, all this stupid bloody one of the nation stuff. It gets picked up everywhere. Every man his dogs reading that damn thing. As a journalist, I spent this morning moving a ton and a half of rock so that in my garden because I needed I needed to get myself ready for next week to keep fighting to do things and sometimes that and I'm talking to a room full of people who probably know what that feels like. If you're on long campaigns, so I'm finding a lot of the time now I'm dealing with the emotional how the hell do I keep on doing this job, doing these super hard things and moving rock might It was productive, I must say it was raining, it wasn't particularly hot, and my garden looks very nice. Um, So there's, I'm not saying it's bad, Um, but I think for a lot of us now, a lot of what we have to do is that self-care thing. Now this has nothing to do with the Just world. I know my time's up, I'm stopping now. Um, But I think it's important that it's said as often as possible, the Gloucester people fighting that, fighting and fighting and fighting that fight and still hearing that there's the you know, lock the gate. Everybody who's here within the media, it very definitely is the same. If you, if you want to take...
1: So that was the Gloucester show, listeners. I loved producing it, going all the way up there on the train, meeting so many very wonderful and inspiring people. They really had all gathered from all those groups who've been fighting off coal and gas for years, and now starting to see the fruits of their efforts and sticking together and talking about self-care and looking after each other and managing conflict because, really, it does take a huge toll to engage in a fight that goes on for years like they have. Tonight you heard uh, voices from the Gloucester Sustainable Futures Weekend. David Ritter, who's the CEO of Greenpeace, David Morris from the Environment Defender's Office in New South Wales, Amanda Cahill, CEO of Next Economy, Manjot Kaur, one of the student strikers for climate and climate leaders. Last was Joanne McCarthy, a senior journalist at the Newcastle Herald, who's quite famous for her in-depth reporting on the pelvic mesh scandal and the reporting on child sexual abuse, which all ended in quite a lot of uh, big institutions shaking in their boots and moving. For production tonight, thank you to Michaela and Andy, who've put the show to air, and my name is Vivian Langford. We represent Beyond Zero Emissions which is a research and educational organisation providing roadmaps for Australia to face the climate challenge. You can check out Beyond Zero Emissions' website for all the reports they've published so far and you can see it's absolutely cutting edge. Uh, We started off with the renewable energy sector. Then we moved on to transport, buildings, agriculture, and now we're getting much more into industry and how Australia can even be an exporter of of, um, zero-carbon fuels. It's very interesting work. It's not a campaigning organisation, but this radio show is the sort of outreach. We try to reach out to the people who are putting these things into action, economists, thinkers, writers, psychologists, farmers all the people that, you know, are making it happen. Lots of the children on the children's strike have said, oh, if nobody's doing anything, but please, if you listen to the archive here, you will see that under the radar a lot of people are doing something and it's a race against time. So thank you for listening, good night and good luck.